Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. You've probably heard Chicago has a new mayor. Lori Lightfoot was elected on April 2nd, 2019 and was inaugurated as Chicago's first black woman and openly gay mayor on May 20th. On her election night, Mayor Lightfoot pledged to, quote, make Chicago a place where your zip code doesn't determine your destiny, unquote. Well, there was a paper just published on April 16th of 2019 in the journal called Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. And this paper addresses this issue directly. The paper focuses on Chicago and was written by two sociologists at Harvard University. What they did was look at upward mobility of black and white children born in the lower income neighborhoods of Chicago. So the timing of this paper to be published right at the same time that a new mayor enters the city hall of Chicago is is interesting. Plus, this topic might be of relevance to us who live here in Louisville. So these sociologists collected a myriad of data, including census data, tax forms, health surveys, police reports, incarceration data, the amount of lead in blood tests, etc., And they wanted to see if they could learn how neighborhoods affect the development and social mobility of children. They also wanted to look at the effect of race on social mobility in children. Now, like Louisville, Chicago is extremely racially segregated. They reported that only 18% of the neighborhoods, they call them tracks, census tracks, but they're really just neighborhoods, only 18% of them are fully integrated. And these integrated neighborhoods are not alike. They're not similar. They're really different from one another. So they weren't able to just study black and white children that were growing up in integrated neighborhoods. Instead, they focused on neighborhoods that were either primarily African-American and then compared those to neighborhoods that were primarily white. They did focus on children that were living in low-income households, those in the bottom 25 percentile of income That means a household income of $27,000 a year or less. The age group they studied were children born between 1978 to 1983. So that means that these kids are now grown up, about 40 years of age now. I think they looked at 1,300 different subjects. There were three things they were primarily interested in. Economic mobility, incarceration, and teenage pregnancy. So basically what they did is they looked at a lot of variables in each of these neighborhoods they examined to see which ones appeared to be better correlated, whether it's a positive correlation or a negative correlation, with either economic mobility, rates of incarceration, and or teenage pregnancy. They looked at the average poverty rate in each neighborhood. They looked at the share of foreign-born. They looked at the share of college-educated people in each neighborhood percent African-American, 
the number of community organizations in that neighborhood, the exposure of people in the neighborhood to lead poisoning. They looked at violent crime, incarceration rates, and then they looked at this thing called social control, which I think considers cohesion among the neighborhoods, how much graffiti is there in the neighborhood, how much drinking there is in public, adult child monitoring, things like that are all couched under this topic of social control. So they examined all of these variables as they occurred in each neighborhood and wanted to know which ones are better correlated with economic mobility, rates of incarceration, and teenage pregnancy. They did identify three factors that seemed to have the greatest impact on how successful the children were when they grew up. One, the rate of street violence. Two, incarceration rates in that neighborhood. And three, high levels of lead in the blood. If you just combine these three factors, street violence, incarceration rates, and how much lead is in the blood, if you combine those three factors, you can do a pretty good job at predicting what will happen to the children growing up in that neighborhood. So what they found was that children who grew up in neighborhoods with high rates of violence, high incarceration rates, and high lead exposure end up earning less money in adulthood than equally poor kids that grow up in neighborhoods with lower violence, lower incarceration, and lower lead pollution. Children from these toxic neighborhoods were more likely to become pregnant as teenagers or jailed in their 20s or 30s. This research provides the ability to make some calculations. For instance, you can calculate that if a black child actually got to live in a white child's neighborhood, the odds of being jailed would drop from a 12% chance to a 6% chance. And if a black child actually got to grow up in a white child's neighborhood, their annual income in their 30s would have been $4,200 a year higher. And a black girl growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood would have a likelihood of getting pregnant as a teenager of 44%, whereas in a predominantly black neighborhood, that chance would have been 54% instead of just 44%. Now, these correlations were generally the same in both black and white neighborhoods, but the thing is, African-American children were exposed to much higher levels of these bad influences. So the authors of this study mentioned a paper that came out last year about intergenerational mobility across the country, not just in Chicago. And that paper reported that, quote, of U.S. children born in the late 1970s and early 1980s, about 63% of white children but only 4% of black children grow up in the type of neighborhoods most likely to foster success in the form of upward intergenerational mobility, unquote. So that's basically what they found in the Chicago study, too. So these are the three elements that would go the furthest in encouraging higher incomes for children growing up in impoverished households. Reduce street violence try to resolve the incarceration crisis somehow, and reduce lead pollution in the neighborhood. So these two sociologists finished their article saying, quote, past interventions that have cleaned up the physical environment and reduced toxic hazards indicate that environmental policy is in part crime policy. Our results suggest a broader conclusion, they say. Reducing violence, 
reforming criminal justice through de-incarceration and maintaining environmental health together make for social mobility policy, unquote. Well, the new mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, who, by the way, won her election with a whopping 74% of the vote, she has a four-point plan that includes one of these three items, and that's to reduce gun violence in the city. Her other emphases have to do with improving education, jobs, and government integrity. Although exposure to lead was not mentioned in her inauguration speech, Eliminating exposure to lead was mentioned a few times in her campaign platform. Solving the problem of mass incarceration, however, was only mentioned once when she was campaigning. It would be interesting to know what sort of correlations they might have found here in Louisville if they'd performed this study here. I don't know how much different we are from Chicago, Illinois, but I can tell you that the two sociologists who spearheaded this particular study in Chicago are now planning on making the same kind of analysis in 54 other cities in the U.S. I hope Louisville's one of them. I'll let you know if I hear anything. Holocaust. One of the most horrible and murderous events in the history of our species was when the Nazi-run German government killed some 5.4 to 5.8 million people of Jewish descent during World War II. Since then, however, genocides and mass killings have continued. Bosnia, Rwanda, Darfur, Burundi, Syria, and Myanmar have all experienced large-scale murders, typically referred to as genocide. Now, what does genocide actually mean? Well, the United Nations Genocide Convention defines it as, quote, acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, unquote. Well, I just read a paper published on January 2nd, 2019, in a journal called Science Advances. And this paper is written by a mathematician by the name of Lewy Stone. He's at Tel Aviv University in Israel. And he attempted to better describe the Holocaust with an eye towards quantifying how the Nazi war against the Jews evolved and the rate at which the genocide actually proceeded. I think the objectives of his paper was to describe how the Holocaust occurred with the idea that, first of all, to set the record straight, and secondly, to help understand better the causes, the characteristics, and the predictability of genocide, which might possibly lead to its future prevention, or at least mitigation. The author of this paper points out that this number of Jews killed in the Holocaust, 5.4 to 5.8 million people, that's too large of a number to actually conceive of. How can the brain really process that large of a number? And that doesn't tell us how these criminal acts were committed. Were people murdered uniformly over those four years at a steady rate of 1.5 million per year? Or did the murders occur sporadically? And if so, why? The author of the paper, Lee Wee Stone, asked, quote, 
Are there any simple, definitive killing patterns that can be distilled from this period that can shed better light on the large-scale dynamics of the Nazi operation? Unquote. This paper is mostly focused on Operation Reinhardt, which has been referred to as the largest single murder campaign within the Holocaust. Operation Reinhardt took place in Nazi-occupied Poland and lasted 21 months in 1942 and 1943. Three death camps were set up during this time, Belzec, Sobibor, and Treblinka, with the intention of eliminating every Jew in German-occupied Poland. It's thought that about 1.7 million Jewish deaths occurred in these three camps, mostly by the gas chamber, but also by shooting. The largest and most infamous Nazi death camp set up in Poland was Auschwitz, but Auschwitz started in 1940 before Operation Reinhardt. Historians know a little bit more about the operation of Auschwitz because there were some people who actually survived that camp. Apparently, however, there were very few survivors of Operation Reinhardt. The calculations indicate that once a prisoner was was brought to one of these three camps, the likelihood of death was 99.99%. This means that there is less direct information about what actually happened there, which is one of the reasons for Professor Stone doing this research. The best scholarly resource about these three death camps is a book originally published in 1987 by Itzhak Arad, a Holocaust scholar. Apparently, this book held carefully kept notes about railway transportation to the three Polish death camps. Professor Stone analyzed these records of train deportations in detail to learn more about the rates of killing. I think the assumption here is that since each camp can only hold a finite number of people at any one time, the number of prisoners being shipped in would be correlated with the number of prisoners leaving by death. This is because apparently victims were murdered within hours of arriving at the camp. Arad's book contained records of some 480 different train deportations from 393 Polish towns. Apparently, the IBM Corporation helped the Nazis during this time. They produced the punch cards and punch card readers, which I suppose could be thought of as primitive computers, that the Germans were able to use to keep their meticulous records about these special trains and to keep them running on time. By the way, IBM punch cards were also used by the Nazis to keep track of the number of prisoners in the different camps. So Professor Stone used this data about the trains to calculate the rate of killing at the three different concentration camps. And we're talking rate of killings here, not just the total number of people killed. This paper concludes that the rate of killing was orders of magnitudes larger than previously estimated. This paper shows that the great bulk of the killings occurred in a rapid three-month pulse from August to October of 1942. There were 320,000 deaths per month in that three-month period, meaning that about one million people of Jewish descent were killed in just these three camps in that three-month period. Truly horrifying. The murdering was almost completely over by December of 1942, and the only reason that the number of killings tapered off after that time is because there basically weren't any Jewish people left in the region to take. 
apparently Nazi commander Heinrich Himmler had already ordered that almost all of the Jews living in Poland should be liquidated by the end of 1942, when the Nazi government realized that they were behind schedule, it is said that on August 15, 1942, quote, the Fuhrer ordered all action speeded up, unquote. That's probably why there is such a historic massacre for the next three months following that, August, September, and October of 1942. This paper is macabre to read because it takes almost a clinical approach to measuring the rate of genocide in detail. That's because it had access to the daily records of train deportations. It reported that the first trains to Treblinka mostly contained children, the sick and the elderly, many dying en route. The daily train to Treblinka was 50 cars long, with 100 people crammed into each car. First, they emptied Warsaw, Poland, then Radom, then Bialystok. The overall average for deaths during this period was 15,000 people murdered per day, but it wasn't consistent. There was a drop in deaths for about a week in August of 1942 because they couldn't handle the masses of corpses. Plus, the gas chambers temporarily broke down, and there was a change in camp commander. It's weird to think about how these different factors came together to cause a drop in the murder rates, but then it just went back up again. This paper also provides maps of Poland showing when and where people were deported, but it's just too sad for me to describe anymore. In the end, I can tell you that altogether, if you include Auschwitz and these three camps, there were 1.47 million Jews murdered by the Nazis in just this one intense 100-day surge. That's more than 25% of all the Jews killed in the six years of World War II. This author makes some comparisons of Operation Reinhardt with the genocide in Rwanda that occurred in 1994. The Rwanda genocide has often been referred to as the most intense genocide of the 20th century, with 800,000 Tutsis being killed in only 100 days. This represented about 75% of the entire Tutsi population that lived in this region. But this paper I'm reviewing today calculates that the rate of murders in Operation Reinhardt was actually 83% higher than the Rwanda genocide. Ugh, it's just hard to imagine how people can do this to each other. Now that we've got all those facts and figures out of the way, what can we learn from this kind of research? It's so sad and depressing. Is there any purpose to knowing about all these unimaginable but true details? Well, there are some lessons to be learned from this research. For instance, in this case, it was all about the speed of the operation. Professor Stone wrote, quote, that the mass killings of Operation Reinhardt mostly occurred in a three-month period likely created substantial confusion among the victims, and its speed would have made the possibility of organized resistance difficult to coordinate in time. That is, the massacre was effectively over before there was time for an organized response, unquote. He calculated that 94% of the Jewish people who lived in this region of Poland were eliminated, and although there was some organized resistance, it just wasn't enough. 
I might as well tell you that one of the reasons I chose this paper to review is that in a previous life, I served as co-chair of a local anti-genocide organization called the Kentuckiana Task Force Against Genocide, CATAG. I'll try to post a link to their Facebook page on Bench Talk's Facebook page in case you are interested in becoming more active on this important issue. Even though I've been active in the past on the topic of genocide, I'm still learning, so this article was interesting to me. In my mind, there are a few important characteristics of genocide in the modern age that were either mentioned or implied by this manuscript. First, the adoption of efficient technology like concentration camps, gas chambers, and those IBM punch cards. Number two, division of labor. There were several comparisons of the Holocaust made in this paper to an assembly line. So apparently each soldier or worker only performed a single job. Some were rounding up Jewish citizens. Others put the victims on trains. Others drove the trains to the camp. Others unloaded the people. Others marched them to the gas chamber. Someone else flipped the switch. Other people disposed of the bodies. By dividing the labor up like this, each person is psychologically separated from the entire event, and therefore they don't have the moral or psychological burden of killing someone directly like with a gun. Also, the individuals who decided to commit the genocide are not the same people who organized it, and that's not the same people who actually carried it out. So that leads to characteristic three, hierarchy. Each soldier and each worker could argue that they were just following orders. There was always someone above them giving the orders. And then there's number four, which is what this article is really about, the swiftness and thoroughness of the operation, so that there was less of a chance of resistance by the victims. Hit them before they even realize what's happening. These characteristics of modern genocide might be part of the explanation for why so many of the worst genocides in our history have occurred since the year 1900. If you follow the United Nations definition, the worst cases of genocide, which is in terms of the number of people actually killed, of the 10 worst genocides that have occurred in our history, nine of them happened in this century or the last, in other words, the last 120 years. That includes the Holocaust, Stalin's starvation of the Ukrainians and the Kazakhs in Kazakhstan, the genocides in Indonesia and Cambodia and Bangladesh, and then the first genocide of the 20th century was in Armenia from 1915 to 1922. Only one of the 10 most major genocides in our history actually occurred in a previous century, that was the Russian murder and deportation of more than 90% of the Circassians in the 1860s. That's the only one that hasn't happened since 1900. So I guess I'm saying it's because of technology, the division of labor, the hierarchy, and the swiftness and thoroughness of the operation, genocides are getting worse. They're getting bigger. I'm going to start winding down this story with a quote by Professor Stone in a newsletter called The Conversation, and I'll post this article on our Facebook page. He says, quote, The Holocaust stands out as a demonstration of how the efficient machinery of government was turned on people in an unparalleled way. It transcended in its ruthlessness and systemic efficiency. 
This is the key lesson of the Holocaust that I believe must not be forgotten, unquote. But I'd like to end the story with another quote, this time by Roger W. Smith, a professor of government at the College of William and Mary, who wrote a chapter in a book called Genocide in the Modern Age back in 1987. Smith wrote, quote, In some ways, of course, it is a mistake to discuss numbers of victims. Every life and every group is unique, and deaths can thus never be compared. Also, numbers have the effect of dissolving the solidarity that victims might otherwise feel for each other. Instead of sensing a common plight, questions of who has suffered the most come to the fore, and numbers lead us into thinking that genocide is defined by some magic number of victims, whereas legally and morally, that is not what genocide means. Nevertheless, he says, numbers do indicate the massiveness of the problem of genocide in the current period. They can also help us see some qualitative differences between genocide as it is practiced now and as it was until at least the 19th century, unquote. One of the most popular phrases that anti-genocide activists often say is, never again. It's a little murky figuring out the history of that phrase, never again. And although the total number of Holocaust victims, almost 6 million, is too big for my little brain to fathom, visualizing that one German train heading to Treblinka every day, pulling 50 cars, with each car crammed with 100 frightened people, that makes it seem a little more real to me. Never again. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time. 
11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.